Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 26 and last in our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth. We'll be uh, finishing our discussion of this book today after eight solid months of discussion. Uh, we are going to uh, uh, bring our discussion to an end tonight with our discussion of the rivers and beacon hills of Gondor. Um, so I'm not going to do big announcements um, other than just to remind folks to uh, check out our space program. We've got 14 awesome modules confirmed for May. Lots of really cool stuff going on. Opportunities to learn about Tolkien's invented languages and uh, his uh, writing systems, his scripts. Uh, So you can learn about Tengwar. You can also learn lots of other things like Klingon, or you could learn uh, Old English. We're starting a new Old English cohort. So much going on. Uh, In addition to the uh, awesome literature classes like Tolkien and magic and and, uh, all kinds of fun things. So um, just wanted to... um, I just wanted to make sure to remind you to check that out, signumuniversity.org slash space. Click on the BlackBerry uh, 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 link down at the bottom, and you can uh, search everything in BlackBerry like I was showing you last week. Anyway, let's jump straight in, because I'm starting later than usual tonight. I I was just telling people I had a little family conflict, but I wanted to persevere uh, and uh, still hold class anyway tonight, because uh, I I were finishing tonight. It is happening. And what's more, uh, just in time, too, because I'm going to be missing several weeks uh, of... Uh, Wednesdays coming up here. Uh, sounds like Butterbur. The month of Mondays. Um, I'm not going to be missing an entire month worth of Wednesdays, but several Wednesdays in a row, possibly three Wednesday nights in a row. Um, so we're going to go ahead and plan to start our next book. So I might as well re-announce, right, to remind folks uh, that our next book that we're going to start next session will be Alice in Wonderland. We're going to read Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Really excited about this. Um, I, I, a lot of people, I think, underestimate how important, especially Through the Looking Glass, was uh, to both Tolkien and Lewis. Both of them refer to that book so often. They quote from it all the time. Um, so uh, anyway, it's really important just for that. But of course, it's entirely delightful uh, on its own as well. Um, so, um, anyway, that's going to be a lot of fun. Really looking forward to it. We're going to, so we're going to start with Alice in Wonderland. Um, and I'm going to plan, we're going to plan to start that on May 18th. So Wednesday, May 18th. So we're going to have a three week gap while I'm traveling and doing a bunch of other things. Um, and then we'll come back together on the 18th of May and begin our discussion of Alice in Wonderland. All right. So that's the plan and we'll see. Now the question is how long am I going to have to go tonight in order to finish this chapter? But I think we should be okay. I think we should be okay. Um, of course, this chapter is one of those sort of fragmentary chapters like the Galadriel and Kelborn chapter, which is kind of designed to be read side by side with the uh, published stuff in Unfinished Tales. So there's a lot of kind of backing and forthing um, and little um, little fragments there. Um, so we're, I'm just going to be kind of skipping around to a bunch of fragments and on some of them, I don't have a whole lot to say, um, but, uh, just wanted to kind of observe a few things in passing. And then there are some others which are pretty, I think it, I, I think that this, uh, uh, the book ends with a bang. Actually, I love the very end of this chapter. So looking forward to getting there. Okay. I, uh, I included this passage for the sake of one word and I'm pretty sure you can guess which word it was. 
The name Glanduin was meant to be Border River, a name given as far back as the Second Age, when it was the southern border of Eregion, beyond which were the unfriendly people of Dunland. In the earlier centuries of the two kingdoms, Enidwife, Middlefolk, was a region between the realm of Gondor and the slowly receding realm of Arnor. It originally included Minhiriath, Mesopotamia. Both kingdoms shared an interest in the region, but were mainly, mainly concerned with the upkeep of the Great Road that was their main way of communication except by sea and the bridge at Tharbad. So, of course, uh, we're talking about the Greenway uh, here, right? The main, uh, that main road there. So, um, did it jump out at you? Did you see what word? <laughs> Can you guess what, what single word prompted me to include this section uh, in here? Yeah, Christopher Bartlett says... One of those words is not like the others. That was very much my, I think I must have I must have gone back and reread that like four times. I mean I I seriously I'm like wait what I, what what what? <laughs> what? <laughs> um uh okay. Um of course the of course the word is Mesopotamia, right? Okay. Um what what so um just to make sure everyone has this in their head I I included a map here um so Minhiriath you see is the region by the shore south of uh you know in the southern part of Eriador uh just south of Eregion uh, as you can see um you know the Minhiriath is bordered on the the north sort of the northwestern angle there by the Brandywine right so we see that's where the Brandywine comes down eventually to the sea the Baranduin and you've got the Guathlo the Grey Flood where Tharbad crosses right so after you've crossed over the Grey Flood at Tharbad and then you're continuing up the Greenway and then you cross over the Brandywine at Sarn Ford which is referred to a couple times in the Lord of the Rings right um, so that area from that from the road down to the ocean, between those two rivers, that is what on this map is labeled Minhiriath, and of course it's right on the other side of the Guathlo, uh, from Enidwife, which is south of the Guathlo, and then, you know, there's Dunland on the other side of that. Yeah, and he, without comment, parenthetically, connects that with Mesopotamia. I didn't include this slide and this word because I had anything to say about it. I just wanted to kind of stare at it with you guys. And also I included it in the vain hope that somebody else had any idea what to make of that. Because I really don't. Um, other than, okay. Now, of course, as you know, you guys know me well enough by now to know that my not having anything to say is not going to stop me talking about it for quite a while. Um, so, one of the things that we can see, we've talked, I've talked about how Tolkien's insistence on continuing the general conceit that Middle-earth and our world are the same, right? Um, that started way, way back when, right? Back in the Book of Lost Tales. And although much has changed and a lot of the context of the stories have are kind of in a different place, significantly different place than they were back at the time of the writing uh, of the Book of Lost Tales. Nevertheless, 
he stubbornly refused to give over that idea. We still see references to it, right? Like in the prologue to The Lord of the Rings, uh, in talking about the hobbits. Um, and, um, okay. And he, um, the insistence that this world is our world has led him to the radical step, which we've seen throughout the nature of Middle Earth material, um, the radical step to decide, I'm going to ditch the flat world thing entirely, right? I'm going to make it, I'm going to conform it to what we know about our solar system, right? And about our planet. Um, even though that means changing a great deal. And it's kind of interesting because we can see sort of two things. On the one hand, we see that. We see not only his continuing to hold on to that concept, the concept of the identity of Middle-earth and our world, but we see him doing it at a great expense, right? A, a very significant cost. And that is at the cost of changing and in some cases jettisoning a great deal of myth that he had already written in the early portions, right? And yet at the same time, we see another thing, and that is what seems to me a general decrease of actual correlation between the geography of Middle Earth and the geography of, like, Europe and Asia. Um, we saw in the Book of Lost Tales, you can see that very clearly, at least as far as the British Isles are concerned, right? Um, that's Tolaresia. Right. Um, explicitly, <clears throat> the British Isles, even down to uh, you may remember the mythic story explaining how the how Ireland got wrenched away from the rest of uh, which happened in the tug of war between Ossie and Olmo. Right. When Ol during Olmo's time of um, time of rebellion. Um, so he was drawing explicit, like intending explicit parallels between his map uh, then and his map, you know, the, the, his map of Middle-earth and his, and the, like, you know, contemporary map, map of Europe. Um, that seems to have passed significantly since that time. Um, you know, since he dropped the idea of Toleresia being England, being the British Isles, basically, um, we haven't seen that kind of thing. And, you know, like when you look at the Middle Earth map, it's one of the things. I think this is one of the reasons why I personally found his continued insistence on that identity. Found the fact that he insisted on it so strongly that he was willing to change all of that myth. I was surprised by that. I remember being surprised by that the first time I read um, the history of Middle-earth, you know, read these, these later volumes of the history of Middle-earth that we've been talking about, along with, of course, the nature of Middle-earth material here. Um, I was surprised because it seemed to me that references like in the prologue about how, you know, that, that, that implication of how, you know, hobbits might still be around in our world nowadays, right? And this is the ancient prehistory. Um, it seemed like kind of um, a, a, a formality, right? Um, like a kind of um, brief and whimsical mention, perhaps not to be taken too seriously. 
At least, again, that's the impression I always got as a, you know, as a kid growing up reading The Lord of the Rings. And the reason I think that I had that impression was primarily from the maps. I'm looking at the maps and I'm like, okay, you know, growing up as a kid in rural West Virginia, I was not a, a, an expert on the map of Europe, but I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's, that ain't it. Right. Um, and, you know, it did not seem like he was making really any efforts to connect the two things together. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm tempted to conclude that too, Alyssa. That is, that he's just using the word Mesopotamia, meaning the land between two rivers, right? I mean, that's what Mesopotamia means. Uh, and of course, Minhiriath is a land between two rivers, right? Between the Brandywine and the Gwathlo there, the Brandywine and the, and the Gwathlo. Let me be consistent in my, uh, uh, in my names there. Um, so yeah, I mean, that works, but I don't know. I feel like, come on, seriously, you're just going to throw out that word? Really? I mean, maybe. That's all he means. You know, it's hard to imagine how he could possibly be asserting a geographical identity between Minhiriath and Mesopotamia. Like, that's really hard to imagine, just geographically, right? Um, right, like, what's the ocean? Like, what on earth is even happening there? Um, so that's, like, seems almost completely inconceivable, Um that he's actually suggesting that kind of an identity. At the same time, unless I have to admit, I can't Im- like... Yeah. Is he offering that as just a, a kind of a whimsical translation? I don't know. Like, without any comment, without even any punctuation, right? Like, um, I could see him, like, if he had put, like, a, an exclamation point after it or something, right? Um, uh, then uh, I would... Um, um, I could, you know, I think like maybe he's like making a joke, right? Um, I'd, you know, do, you know, sort of quasi translating, you know, showing how Mesopotamia is a quasi translation of the Sindarin Minhiriath, right? Um, but it's just, just to slap it in there, you know, included Minhiriath, Mesopotamia. (laughs) It's just, whatever. Um, maybe he means nothing more than the area between two rivers. That's possible. And no, Christopher, it's not much like the space between Tigris and Euphrates. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, probably just a joke. Probably just a joke. But, an odd one. Uh, very much an odd one. Anyway, okay. Um, but moving on. Um, this, I think, was a really fun glimpse. He talks about the river the river Adorn. This is not on the map, but, it, but is given as the name of the short river flowing into the Aizen from the west of Arid Nimrais in Appendix A. It is, as would be expected in any name in the region not of Rohani's origin, of a form suitable to Sindarin, 
but it is not interpretable in Sindarin. It must be supposed to be of pre-Numenorean origin adapted to Sindarin. Um, and I love this as... Notice how... There are a couple things here. Um, first thing, I love this as a linguistic representation of the history of the area again, right? Um, of course, one of the really significant elements of this whole area of like southern and uh, western Gondor, um, you know, and up in the Kalinarthen region and everything, is <clears throat> that um, it's it will it comes under Numenorean sway, right? But was settled by non-Numenorean peoples long before that, right? And so that he would attempt to represent that situation linguistically, it seems, of course, entirely in keeping with Tolkien's normal method, right? Um, that there would be a pre a, a, a name derived from a pre-Numenorean human language, which is itself forgotten. The language is itself forgotten, right? But, of course, the Numenorians, even if the Numenorians adopted some local place names, retained some local place names, they would change it so that it would be, as he says, adapted to Sindarin, right? So it, it sounds like Sindarin. Um, they would kind of Cinderize it uh, in the same way that, you know, famously, uh, you know, m- names like... Uh, you know, Slavic names would get uh, Americanized, right, and in Ellis Island. Um, that kind of thing. Um, makes sense, right? Makes exact sense that that would happen. Um, really fun to see him imagining those that kind of a history again. And the sort of side note that I would add as a, uh, a, a you know, kind of as a, as a writer to that is notice how, in a sense he's sort of doing it again. And by it, I mean that direct parallel. We've talked about how how you can see through his discussion of the history of the of the languages, right? The, the, the development of the Elvish languages. We talked about this just recently. Um, how in the history of the... His discussion of the history of the development of the English languages... Uh, not the English languages, the Elvish languages. You can see him... Um, you can see where the stories come from, right? Him imagining these different kind of philological circumstances and conditions, right? Of like separations of peoples and then distance over time. And then some of them coming back together again. And then others living as neighbors to people from other language groups. And how will that affect their language compared to, you know, the language of people who were not in contact with them and all, all those other, all these other different scenarios, each of which he was imagining and playing with in his language creation process and which then, therefore are represented in the narrative, right? In the storyline of the Silmarillion. Hence, uh, every first time Silmarillion readers, you know, least favorite parts about, uh, you know, the, those paragraphs, which just talk about all of the subdivisions of the elves and all the different names that they have and everything like that. Um, but, um, but anyway, it's neat to see him doing a parallel thing here, right? With the human languages, um, sh- once again, showing in the name Adorn, right, we get this example of here's a name which is like Sindarin, but isn't actually Sindarin, right? Um, so how did that come to be? Well, again, there's this story behind that. Um, but here, I think it's interesting because this, it seems to me, 
is clearly working the other way around, right? Um, that is, we can see how, and I, I believe Tolkien when he says that what came first was the language invention situation, right? You started with a philologist making up languages for fun and him rolling out all of these potentially different, you know, uh, he invents a language and then he doesn't, not content with inventing a language or more than one language, he wants to invent this whole complex history of the language so that he can experiment with how that language would change over time, right? You know, this is, um, that's like the sort of geeking out with language squared hobby that Tolkien had right there. Um, and that those came first and then the stories follow afterwards in order to give the context of history for why this was happening. And that's where the Silmarillion legends come from. This shape here, the shape of the the circumstances of the river Adorn, um, is, uh, is, is similar to that. It seems parallel to that. And yet it seems fairly clear that it's, um, that it's working in the other direction, right? That it's working backwards in the other direction. Um, there the story came first. I, I think it's pretty clear that the settlement of Middle-earth by the Numenorians and the fact that they were, would have been speaking, you know, would have been, you know, conversant in Silmarin and Cinderin and we were using Cinderin as, uh, as, you know, sort of for, for naming conventions and things. I think that those stories came first, right? And that this name came afterwards. So what seems to me uh, to be, you know, happening there, right, <clears throat> is that he's retconning the, like, the philological situation, right? He's, like, recreating this similar thing. You know, the first time he had the foundation of the languages and the history of the development of the languages, and he needed the stories to explain it. Now he's got the stories, but yet, like, the story's still kind of feeling complete, right, without any remnant of the philological situation that underlies it, right? So we get pointers to it. Um, and I think... Um, uh, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, I think that's uh, that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, Alyssa, I was wondering about that. I kind of spent a little bit of time staring at Rohanese. Um, in fact, Alyssa, I spent so much time staring at it that I began to wonder, like, am I going crazy? Like, is it just me? Does that seem... I, I, my first reaction was, that's weird. And then my second reaction was, it is weird, right? <laughs> like, that's not the normal adjective he used. I started to doubt myself. Um, but yeah, Rohiric is normally the adjectival form. Um, I don't know why he's using Rohanese here. Um, uh, Alyssa, I don't know if you can think of any other examples, not of his using Rohanese, but I I'm wondering, could, there, could he be introducing a distinction between, like, Rohiric meaning like, of a referring to the language, whereas Rohanese might be of a referring to the people, or maybe the other way around, right? Is he trying to introduce a distinction like that? Or is he really just saying, nah, I don't want to go the Eric form. I want to go the Anese form um, in the adjective. Um, not really sure, but I'm really glad you mentioned that, Alyssa. As I said, I was having... Uh, I was having... Uh, I was... I. After staring at that for a few minutes, I found myself in the grip of, of, uh, of, of, of self-doubt uh, on that point. Um, yeah, anyway, okay. 
Let's keep going. Really, really small note, um, but I thought it was uh, uh, apposite to a discussion we've been having recently uh, about the, the darkness stuff, the unlight, uh, the uh, the concept of darkness having a positive existence and not merely being the absence of light, right? So this is, in the, of course, in the context of the name Gwathlo. Gwath was a common cindering word for shadow or dim light, not for the shadows of actual objects or persons cast by sun or moon or other lights. These were called morkind, dark shapes. And I was particularly glad for this sentence because this is something that seems to me to be a confusion, which the use of the word shadow, like throughout the Lord of the Rings, right, to talk about the shadow, um, you know, meaning the, you know, the darkness, the evil of Sauron. Um, and of course, it's a really common metaphor uh, in the Lord of the Rings. And sometimes, like in talking to people over the years, um, I've often noticed in listening to people talk about it that some people seem to be kind of operating under the impression that the fundamental metaphor when we talk about the shadow um, in Mordor uh, is that the, fun, the fundamental metaphor is like the shadow on the ground, right? Um, and there are moments when that seems to me potentially relevant, um, but I've never thought it generally was. And it's interesting to hear him draw the distinction here specifically and talk about the different words involved, right? That the 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 concept, right, the, the, the linguistic concept of shadow in the sense of like just a place that's darker right like where you know like the the sh- like shadows under the trees right you know the shadows under the f- in, in within the forest or whatever like we we get this in fangorn for instance um but it, this is not just a shape a two-dimensional shape that is thrown by you know the effect of the sun like that um but um Anyway, so I think that that's um, uh, it's an interesting kind of affirmation, I think, that by and large, when we hear shadow, right, like the shadow in Mordor, it's definitely not talking about that kind of shadow. Um, so I mean, just the, 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 the clear differentiation of those two concepts. I thought was uh, um, useful, useful and uh, helpful even in uh, understanding some other things and clearing up some potential uh, confusions or even just to provide clearer evidence for something I felt already pretty convinced by. This book has been great for that, actually, in several ways, Um, providing some clear passages that I can point to and say, because, again, it's, it's sometimes so hard, right? If people have a particular interpretation or a particular reading, just, like, if they're committed to it, right? If that is, that is like, what this means in their heads, um, sometimes it's really difficult or even impossible to kind of get them to see it another way, right? Uh, so sometimes passages like this are useful when if people think I'm just kind of making something out of nothing. All right, anyway... Let's talk about Gilrein. Um, loved this discussion of the difference between Gilrein the river and Gilrein the mother of Aragorn. 
This resembles Gilrine. This resembles the name of Aragorn's mother, Gilrine. So Gilrine with an A I N is the river, and Gilrine with an A E N is Aragorn's mom. But unless it is misspelt, must have had a different meaning. Originally, the difference between correct Sindarin A E and A I was neglected, AI more usual in English being used for both in the general narrative. So, right, so when these words are transliterated, like when the book, when, when this work has been translated into English and therefore transliterated, since AI is the more common, uh, uh, you know, vowel combination in English, often AI has been sloppily substituted for AE in some places, right? Um, so, Dairon, now corrected for Dairon with an I, now corrected for Dairon with an E, and a D-A-E-R-O-N, a derivative of Sindarin Dair, large, great, C-E, Daira, D-A-I-R-A, uh, from base day, not found in Quenya. So, Hithlagir, Hithlagir, uh, with an A-I, on the map for Hithaiglir with an A-E, and Iglos, A-I-G-L-O-S, for A-E-G-L-O-S, Iglos. The element Gil in both is no doubt Sindarin Gil, spark, twinkle, of light, star. That is the, the Gil element in Gilrine, obviously, not in Iglos. We're not talking about that anymore. Um, Often used of the stars of heaven in place of the older and more elevated El, Elen stem. Similarly, Tinwe, spark, was also used in Quenya. The meaning of Gilrain, Aragorn's mom, with an A-E, as a woman's name is not in doubt. It meant one adorned with a treasure, tres, treasure, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that word, T-R-E-S-S-U-R-E, it's a very unusual English word, a very archaic English word, with a treasure, tresh. Tre- tre- is it Tresher or Tresser with an S, with a hissing S, do you think? Tresser? I mean, it's from Tress, um, but the S to U is almost always in English done with the voiced version instead of the unvoiced version. Tresser. But Tresser sounds like Dresser, and it doesn't look much alike. I'm having troubles figuring out how to properly say this word. Um, okay. Treasure. So not the S, the SH. Um, Alyssa, according to the Oxford American Dictionary. Okay. Treasure. Okay. It meant <clears throat> one adorned with a treasure set with a small, with small gems in its network, such as the treasure of Arwen described in the Lord of the Rings volume, uh, uh, Volume 1, page 239. Uh, of course, when Arwen is described at the feast in Frodo's honor in Rivendell. It may have been a second name given to her after she had come to womanhood, which, as often happened in legends, uh, which, as often happened in legends, had replaced her true name, no longer recorded. Um, so, right, the question is, like, is, uh, is one adorned with a treasure set with small gems in its network what her mama named her, right? Or was that a nickname? given to her later on, like, did she used to wear such a treasure, right? And, um, um, so, um, 
she got that name later on, and then her original name, the name her mama did give her, was uh, was forgotten. More likely, it was her true name, since it had become a name given to women of her people, the remnants of the Numenorians of the North Kingdom of Unmingled Blood. The women of the Eldar were accustomed to wear such treasures, but among other peoples, they were used only by women of high rank among the, quote, rangers, descendants of Elros, as they claimed. Names such as Gilrine and others of similar meaning would thus be likely to become first names given to maid children of the kindred of the lords of the Dunedain. In other words, it seems to become a kind of class marker, right? Um, this kind of treasure, right, treasure set with small gems in its network like we see Arwen wearing, right, elf women often wear those, right? But most human people did not, right? Um, uh, except for Numenorean, right, Dunedain women of high rank. And so it becomes associated with that high rank, right? Um, and therefore becomes a popular girl's name, especially, you know, among Dunedain of pure blood, right? Um, so that's interesting. First of all, I also am interested in the fact that the word rangers is in quotation marks, right? Um, that's a, a really interesting reminder. There are places um, where the word ranger seems to be something all the, you know, to uh, begin to lose touch with its apparent origin, right? I mean, we're introduced to the word ranger as essentially a slang word um, and apparently uninsulting, a slang word of insulting intention, even uh, something almost akin to a racial slur used in Brie, right, of these people. Um, and um, But as time goes on, there seem to be moments when that word seems to be changing, right, and to becoming a sort of a more, not just a, a piece of Brie slang, uh, but to become kind of more official. Um, one of the places, of course, where that begins to feel like maybe that's happening um, is the the reference to the rangers of Athelion, right, who clearly have nothing to do with Bree. Um, but um, anyway, uh, the putting of rangers in quotation marks here seems to me to be recalling the fact that, like, although that word is kind of in common usage, um, popularized, right, by Frodo and Sam in their narration, um, it's still not actually their proper name, or what they call themselves. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Note, therefore, also the connection, the implicit connection. I'm trying, sorry, I'm pausing before uttering this sentence <clears throat> because this sentence could be taken very wrongly. So I'm trying to be careful. But having said that, I'm just going to say it and I'm going to trust you guys to be mature about what I'm trying to establish here. Tolkien seems to be establishing an interesting connection 
between Aragorn's wife and his mother, right? Um, and I'm not going all Freudian here, uh, but it's really interesting to me that, I mean, Arwen's... Why is it... What evidence do we have that the women of the Eldar were accustomed to wear such treasures? And the answer is pretty much Arwen's description in Lord of the Rings, volume one, page 239, right? Um, that is to say, Arwen herself seems to have inspired. The description of Arwen um, seems to have inspired this interpretation of Gilrine's name, right? So there seems to be a sense in which Aragorn's mother is almost not exactly named after Arwen herself, but right, like derives her name, the significance of her name, from Arwen herself, right? Um, which, of course, makes a certain amount of sense. Um, this connection. Uh, Gilrein, whose name means one adorned with a treasure set with small gems. Um, in other words, one who is distinguished as a queen among the survivor, the, the remnant of Arnor, right? The survivors of Arnor, the direct, dis, the last remaining dis, direct descendants of the royal line of Numenor, right? Um, her, na- her name basically means essentially, like, one way to paraphrase in this sense, the name Gilrine, as he's describing it, with an E, right, is essentially queen of the line of Elros, right? She's that kind, Right, and of course that that the specific imagery attached to that the the uh, you know the gem the bejeweled hairnet right that she that 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 her name means the fact that Arwen is wearing that uh, you know showing the kind of parallelism between the two lines right the line of Elrond uh, uh, and the line of Elros um, you know and the the kind of the bringing back together of the you know the the, the two lines of the half elven it all seems to be kind of tied. Um, tied together, right? Um, and that seems to me to work. So long as you don't get too edible about it. Um, okay. But let's leave that dangerous subject. Okay. Um, this little snippet version of the story of Amroth and Nimrodel um, is not very much unlike uh, the other versions that we've seen in Unfinished Tales, but there was this one element that really jumped out at me and I thought was fascinating. Amroth had never taken a wife. For long years he had loved Nimrodel, but had sought her love in vain. She was of sylvan race and did not love the incomers, that is, the Nolor, right? who, she said, brought wars and destroyed the peace of old. She would speak only the sylvan tongue, even after it had fallen into disuse among most of the people. But when the terror came out of Moria, she fled away distraught, and Amroth followed her. He found her near the eaves of Fangorn, which in those days drew much nearer to Lorien. She dared not enter that wood, for the trees, she said, menaced her, and some moved to bar her way. There they had long converse, and in the end they plighted their troth, for Amroth vowed that for her sake he would leave his people even in their time of need, and with her seek a refuge of peace. But there is no such. Okay, the element uh, that I was um, uh, that I was really interested in here is the Fangorn connection, right? Um, why is Fangorn so hostile to Nimrodel, right? Um, 
this now uh, would rocket up my list of questions I would want to ask Treebeard. Right. Um, should the suitable occasion of appropriate duration um, uh, ever uh, 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 greet me? Um, why? Why will Fangorn not let Nimradel in? It's very odd, isn't it? Um, but I couldn't help but connect it with what I've always felt was another odd thing. Um, and it's a, it's a, a thing that the Lord of the Rings itself doesn't... Fu- it kind of hints at an answer to it, but it doesn't fully explain. And that is, why exactly does Celeborn warn them against Fangorn as he does? Right? On the one hand, of course, there's a certain simple practicality to it. Most people who... Um, you know, become entangled in the forest of Fangorn, don't come out again, right? Um, it's a dangerous place, by anybody's measure, right? Um, but there seems to be something behind that. Like, why, why you know, um, even the response that Treebeard gives, like, I might have said much the same if you were going the other way, right? Um, uh, don't risk getting entangled in Laurel and Doranin. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, there there seems I don't know. It, I I've never really felt satisfied uh, with that only answer, right? That that it gives, um, and so I couldn't help but remember that when I came across this, and I'm like, hmm, maybe Kelleborn remembers, right? Maybe Kelleborn remembers this moment. Um, Fangorn, you can't, you never know with Fangorn, right? Um, sometimes Fangorn is inexplicably hostile. Not just dangerous, in a kind of garden variety dangerous way, not just something that you might go into and not find your way out of, but um, and not something just that contains dangerous creatures that might kill you like, you know, black horns and whatever. But um, uh, but yeah, that um, there's a history of hostility with elves, not just with dwarves. Senalicia, it is, of course, Senalicia, it is conceivable that Nimrodel was too free with her axe. Um, but it's hard to imagine. <laughs> it's hard to imagine what Nimrodel could have done to earn the wrath of Fangorn. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, it just seemed an interesting connection, potentially. Okay. Now, uh, just to kind of close the loop on Gilrine, right? We, we, we read about the what Gilrine with an A-E means. So what about Gilrine with an A-I? And this, of course, is why we had been talking about Nimrodel in the first place. The river Gilrine with an I, if related to the legend of Nimrodel, must contain an element derived from C-E-Ron, wanderer, stray, meander, wander, stray, or meander. Uh, cross-reference Quenya Ranya, erratic wandering, Cinderin Rhine, Rhine, um, R A I R E I N or R A I N. Uh, Cinderin Rondir, wanderer, in myth Rondir. Quenya Rana, name of the spirit Maya that was said to abide in the moon as its guardian. Um, okay, so Rana like the moon, Rondir as in wanderer, myth Rondir, gray wanderer. Um, I know it's often translated gray. Pilgrim, which is a fascinating translation, which I wish I understood better. Um, 
Where was his pilgrimage? Notice that sense of, uh, of purpose, of destiny that is given to his wandering, which seems to be quite opposed to the literal meaning of wander, right? Um, a wanderer, wanderer and pilgrim are really not similar words, right? But anyway, sorry, that's not what I came here to talk about. Um, so the connection with Nimrodel, of course, is that the, the word Gilrine, the name Gilrine of the river, comes from the wanderer straying, meander, the wandering, straying, and meandering of Nimrodel and her people as she tried to get to the sea. Um, and uh, uh, and so that's where the run comes from. Um, but of course, there's one other detail that I wanted to note in passing as we pass through, and that is Rana. Um, who was Rana in the old days? That is, like, you know, from 1950 and earlier, who is Rana? Almost this, but not exactly this, right? Um... Yeah, it's the name of the dude who takes up and guards the flower of the moon and steers the moon. He's the man in the moon, right? Rana is the man in the moon. Um, and of course, he was needed back in the old days, right? In the old days when the moon was derived from the last flower of Telperion, right? Because the last flower of Telperion is not going to cruise itself across the sky. It needs somebody to carry it in, you know, the moon chariot, right? Um, and similarly, Aryan, right, is the name of the Maya who is uh, um, the, the guardian and steers person of the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the sun, right, of the last fruit um, of Laurelin. But of course, those are two of the myths we've cut, right? That Tolkien has cut in this later period. We're, we're not making the sun. The sun and moon are there from the beginning of Arda, right? Um, we're, not, we're not doing Rana. There's no more man in the moon. The, the, the moon doesn't have a man in it. It's now a bunch of rock orbiting the earth, right? Um, so I was interested to see apparently there is still a man in the moon, Right? Rana, the name of the spirit that was said to abide in the moon as its guardian. So it still has a guardian. Now it sounds more like, um, uh, more like, more like Oyarsa, right? From uh, Lewis's Out of the Silent Planet, right? It sounds more like a planetary intelligence. A spirit that abides in the moon as its guardian. Um, he's not steering it. He's not running it. It's there doing its own thing independently. He just lives there and guards it. So, okay. Good to know. I'm a little bit relieved to hear um, that... Uh, I'm a little bit relieved to hear that there's still a man in the moon. <laughs> right? Uh, he's, he's willing to, comprom- you know, to compromise some of his myths, right? To, to even remove some of his, his myths. Um, but he's... Uh, not just abandoning 
all everything about them, right? He can't abandon the man in the moon, right? There's a whole song about them. There's two songs about the man in the moon. Only one of them gets sung in the Lord of the Rings, but still, um, they're, uh, they're whole songs about the man in the moon. We can't give him up. Um, yeah, cool. Yeah, Cecilia, it is kind of confused. So Cecilia was asking uh, about Emroth and Nimrodil. Uh, it says they plighted their troth, but at first she did not love him. Could she not have loved him, but for one reason or another, at least for a time, have agreed to marry him? Like, that seemed to... Be, I, I, I hear you. I, I agree it's one of the strange elements of the story of, of Amroth and Nimrodel. Um, that there seems to be reluctance on her part that's overcome somehow, right? Um, that seems to run contrary to what we read um, about the marriage, you know, the uh, how love and marriage works among the elves, right? Um, you know, he loved her, she wasn't into him, but he was very patient and persistent and eventually won her over. Is not it seemed how the story goes, right? Um, in fact, it almost seems like if he loved her and she's not into him, and he persisted, that's a not a great sign about him, right? Um, I mean, it's not as bad as loving your first cousin or committing adultery, right? As far as showing that there's something warped in your affections. Um, you know, that it's like a serious red flag um, uh, about you. Um Again, according to again, according to the Elvish, Elvish traditions that we're that we're discussing, um, but Cecilia, it's like kind of in that category. It's not as bad as those, but it seemed like kind of in the in that category, didn't it? Um, so it's 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 a weird element, I think, um, of uh, about the story of Amroth and Nimrodel from the beginning. Um, but of course, that's just a weird story all the way across, right? Um, to be honest, I find most of the elements, um, uh, I find most of the elements of the Emroth and Nimrodel story weird. I find that, like the element of temporarily non-requited love there, strange. Um, his own pledge to sacrifice the good of his people for the sake of his passion for her sounds really strange. Like, elves do that? Seriously? How often does that happen? Um, you know, it, the, 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 the kind of, like, uh, you know, tragic romance hero element of that doesn't feel like normal from an elvish perspective, right? And then on top of all of that, you get, um, you know, the probably not Nimrodel herself, right? Um, but one of Nimrodel's handmaidens becoming the mother of the, you know, line of Prince Imrahil. So you get a, a like, random shacking up of elf with human in 
a bond which is not counted as one of the like it's totally a crossbreeding of humans and elves but it like doesn't count among the total you know the unions of elves and men like the three unions of elves and men it's like unnumbered right in the unions of elves and men um so it's um so cecilia all i'm saying is i find it weird too uh from beginning to end i find the amroth and nimmerdale story weird now i want to come back to um uh let's see janotanis was suggesting again about Nimmerdale. She may have misinterpreted the tree's actions. Perhaps they were blocking her way to prevent her from falling in a crevice or other danger she didn't notice, right? Maybe they were being protective. Maybe this is not a Fangorn story, but a Nimmerdale story, right? That they were trying to do some good for her um, and she misinterpreted it, right? And uh, and read it as hostility, right? Instead of uh, helpful obstructiveness, in a sense. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think... Um, I think, Alyssa, I agree with you about the hostility in the end. Um, you know, the bad memories handed down and stuff, all that, that passage that you're quoting. I think you're probably right, but I think it's an interesting idea. Um, yeah, well, so... Alyssa's asking me if I'm sure it's not normal. The again she fled, but swift he came uh, is one of the oldest of Tolkien's romance patterns revisited. Yeah, but Baron's immortal, right? I mean, we don't see elves carrying on that way, generally, right? I mean, there is, there are some Aeol and Arathel parallels, um, Reg, but they're uncomfortable, <laughs> It's one of the things that's uncomfortable about it, right? Um, uh, now, Amroth is not Aeol. The situations are not at all similar. Um, but um, honestly, even the story about the origin of Karen Amroth feels a little stalkerish to me. You know, like she lives in a flat um, near the waterfall, right? And uh, he's into her, and she's not into him. So what does he do? He moves himself up nearby, right? And builds a flat like hers, but higher than hers, so he can like <laughs> look down. Right? I mean, it's it's like it's a little stalkerish, like it's a little creepy. And again, I know, Alyssa, I know that one could say that, like you know, Baron jumping out of the bushes and ch- chasing after Luthien is a little also creepy and stalkerish. Like I get that, um, but all I'm saying is, Baron at least has the excuse that he is a mortal, overwhelmed by his experience in fairy doing what mortals do. Um, the main difference, you know, so Tolkien is there playing on a very old fairy tale trope, right? Of the mortal who finds himself in fairy being confronted by uh, dancing fairies and, and a fairy queen. Um, but, uh, uh, but of course, then you get the huge variation, right? The inconceivable catastrophe that she turns and lays her hand in his instead of, like, you know, turning him into a deer or, you know, freezing him into a statue or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> Roach, um, uh, Tom and Goldberry? Yes. Well, I mean, but what's an attempted drowning between young lovers. Um, 
I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. But um, again, all I say is, especially after all of the, you know, what we've been told, all of these things, we, all the world building we see Tolkien doing involving elves and marriage and childbearing and love just makes Amroth and Nimrodel's relationship stranger to me. Uh, then um, uh, it just continually strange to me. Anyway, all right, let's keep going. Okay, um, keep away from Drugs. There were no other rivers in this region, further Gondor, until one came to the Levnui, the longest and widest of the five. This was held to be the boundary of Gondor in this direction, for beyond it lay the promontory of Angast, and the wilderness of old Pukuland, Druith Yaur, which the Numenorians had never attempted to occupy with permanent settlements, though they maintained a coast guard force and beacons at the at the end of Cape Ungast. Um, I um, I am endlessly fascinated by the Drugs. I love the Druidine. Um, I think it's on my short list of things I would have wanted to see. You know, like in my list of, uh, you know, if Tolkien could have been given 10 more years, what would I have wanted him to write? And what would I have asked him to write? Um, number one on my list, of course, is the end of the tour. Uh, you know, the 1950s tour. Uh, always number one on my list. But high on my list, high on that list would be um, more stories about the Druidine. Right, uh, a, a more th- like a, like a history of the Druidine. I would read a whole like epic poem about the Druidine. Right, I'd read like the annals of the Druidine. Oh man, like I just I I find them fascinating. I'm really interested in them. And one of the things, um, one of the touches in the Druidine essay in Unfinished Tales that I find most tantalizing and interesting is the fact that the Druidine were in Numenor also, but left it because they got a presentiment, right, about the fact that um, they, 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 they left Numenor uh, like rats leaving a sinking ship, right, before it sank. Um, how did that go? How was that, right? Um, what was their relationship? This is why I still, uh, I don't really think that in the Rings of Power, we're going to see Woodwoses in uh, Numenor. But a boy can hope, can't he? Anyway, um, this little glimpse of the fa- of this, like, this is the only other reference I can think of. that I, I, mean, I couldn't think of any others apart from that one uh, in the Druidine essay. Of a direct link between the Numenorians and the Pukulmen, between the Numenorians uh, and the Woses. And this, so that this wilderness was called Old Pukuland. This was the land, the, the Druidine lived there, right? And that the Numenorians apparently um, stayed out, right? They, uh, they kept a Coast Guard force and beacons at the end of the Cape, right? It's not like they treated the whole, um, the whole Cape as sacred land they couldn't step on or something like that. Um, but they never 
They didn't invade. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, they didn't. You know, colonize old Pukul land. Um, uh, they didn't demand tribute from the Druidine. They didn't integrate them in the way that they integrated the other peoples of southern Gondor. Um, and um, uh, that's really interesting, right? So what's the history there? Uh, what, uh, what do they think? What do the Numenorians like, how do they look at the Druidine, right? What do they think about them? Um, what is that relationship like? I wish I knew more, but I was really excited to see this one little reference, which at least gives us a little something, though I'm not quite sure exactly what or how much, but but it's something. It's something. Okay. Um, this was fun. Belfalas. This is a special case. Bel is certainly an element derived from a pre-Numenorian name, like, uh, uh, what was it? I've already forgotten it. What is it? Ang is the, the A one. Adorn. That's it. There we go. Okay. Adorn. Um, d- an element derived from a pre-Numenorian name, but its source is known and was in fact Sindarin. The regions of Gondor had a complex history in the remote past, so far as their population was concerned, and the Numenorians evidently found many layers of mixed peoples and numerous islands of isolated folk either clinging to old dwellings or in mountain refuges from invaders. But there was one small but important element in Gondor of quite exceptional kind, an Elderin settlement. Little is known of its history until shortly before it disappeared, for the Elderin elves, whether exiled Noldor or long-rooted Sindar, remained in Beleriand until its desolation in the great war against Morgoth, and then even if they did not take sail over the sea, wandered westward, seek read eastward, oops, in Eriador. There, especially near the Hifiglir, on either side, they found scattered settlements of the Nandor, Teleran elves, who had in the first age never completed the journey to the shores of the sea, but both sides recognized their kinship as Eldar. Okay, several things here. First of all, a little side note. Um, I am not at all positive that Tolkien meant eastward in Eriador. Um, I think he might have meant westward. I'm not sure that's... It might be a mistake. I'm not trying to say... I resist the idea that Tolkien can ever make a mistake, but I'm not positive that that is one. Um, the Elderin elves remained in Beleriand until its desol- desolation in the Great War against Morgoth. And then, if they did not take sail overseas, so what did they tend to do if they didn't sail in the ocean? Those who lived in Beleriand, what did they tend to do? Did they wander westward? Some wandered westward like over the Misty Mountains to Rovanian, right? I'm thinking of like Orifer and Thranduil, right? Um, eventually, Galadriel and Celeborn. Um, but I think it's quite possible that he does mean they wandered westward in Eriador. That is to say, they stayed in the... Although they remained in Middle-earth, they stayed in the westward parts of it, right? They tended to wander westward. Um, he's not... I, I think Because I, I don't think that, that the end of that sentence is describing them crossing from Beleriand into Eriador, which would be eastward, of course. Um, I, I don't think he's describing that because, of course, the circumstances under which they're doing that is when Beleriand is already under the ocean, 
Right. Um, so they're not leaving Beleriand and going east. They're already east on account of they're standing on dry land, <laughs> right? Um, so I think that I suspect that he meant westward. Um, in other words, you are most likely to find survivors of Beleriand in the western portions of Eriador. Um, there are fewer survivors of Beleriand who wandered eastward across the Misty Mountains out to Ravanian and possibly points further east than that. Um, it's, um, it's, it's possible, right, that some of them might have done, um, but that's not where you would tend to find them. So I, I think probably he means westward there. Um, it's a little bit confusing in the context, but that's, that's my reading of that anyway. Okay, sorry. Um, so there's an Eldarin settlement in Belfalas, and this is why we have this Sindarin name, which is actually a Sindarin name, um, or at least that part, which is actually from Sindarin. Um, so, um, anyway, um, what I've always one of the things that I found really fun about this, not just this paragraph that I've included here, uh, but this whole little section on Belfalas um, and the discussion of the, uh, the elder and settlement there in Gondor. One of the things that I found particularly fun about that is, so there have always been these two parallel structures. It's, it's another example of a pattern you see in Tolkien all the time. Right when you've got parallel stories, but where like one is usually the later one is parallel but on a smaller scale, right? Like you know, Mithros chained up to the cliff, Fingon going to rescue him, and in despair sitting down and singing a song, right through which he discovers Mithros hanging up above him, um, and Sam rescuing Frodo, right under similar circumstances, but it's. Smaller scale, right? Hobbits instead of Noldor. Um, you know, Tower of Kirithungal instead of Thangarodrim. Um, naked in a prison hatchway rather than stapled to the cliff, right? Um, anyway, so that's a common pattern, that kind of repetition, that, uh, you know, sort of diminished repetition. Um, and what the Numenorians do in Gondor has always been, in my mind, another one of those parallels, right? Just as, at the end of the First Age, the survivors of Beleriand do, in fact, go into the further eastern lands, and we get this pattern where we see a small number of Sindar or Noldor uh, uh, elves, right? Sindarin or Noldorin elves living among the Sylvan elves, right? So they go among <clears throat> the natives, right? the native populations there and are often sort of accepted as their leaders, right? And go on to, to lead the realms. We see this in Orifer and th with Thranduil. We see this, uh, in, we see this in Lorien and in Mirkwood. Right? And we talked about this some last time, though it was interesting to see him kind of changing some of that last time, but whatever. We talked about that last time. Um, but of course it's very similar to what the Numenorians do. And so the, you know, that the elf thing happened, after the end of the First Age and at the very beginning of the Second Age, um, at the very end of the Second Age, at the very beginning of the Third Age, we see the same thing happening again, but with humans this time, 
right? Parallel construction, but smaller scale. Um, this time, it's the survivors of Numenor, like the survivors of Beleriand, coming among the native peoples, and in many cases, being accepted and acclaimed as their kings and rulers, and establishing new kingdoms with them, like in Gondor, right? So I'd always been kind of interested to think about those parallels between those two things. And here in this whole passage on Belfalas, we're seeing, I'm about to use a um, mathematically impossible analogy. It's like a mixed math metaphor, right? But they're parallels which are coming close together and coming almost into contact, right? And I know if they're parallel, they're not going to get closer to each other, right? I I understand that. Um, But I feel like that really interesting thing is happening, right? That, uh, um, you know, it's uh, this in this moment, it's almost like sort of crossing those two streams. It's happening in one place at the same time, right? Uh, These maybe exiled Noldor or long-rooted Sindar um, coming in among the Nandor, the Teleran elves um, in the same time and place that the um, or at least in the same place, right? That the Numenorians are now doing the same thing. Like this whole little sequence, this whole little story that he tells, really to me draws attention. Um, uh, really draws attention to that um, uh, to that parallel, right? To the the this, the similarity of that construction. Okay, um, the last thing we're going to talk about and. We're getting towards the end here. I think I've got three slides. This is my, I think this is my the antepenultimate slide of the entire uh, of the entire discussion here. Um, we're going to talk about the Halifirian. Um I said I really loved how this book ended. This is the part that I loved. Um, There's the part that I loved. Okay, so the question is the Halifirian. It's the holy mountain. What's holy about it, right? Why is it holy, right? Why is it holy? Um, And we see him working that out. But the account in Annals contains two remarkable details. That there was at the place where Kyrian and Aerol stood what appeared to be an ancient monument of rough stones, nearly man-high with a flat top. And on that occasion... Sorry, and that on this occasion, Kyrian, to the wonder of many, invoked the one, that is, God. His exact words are not recorded, but they probably, of course, not until later on, right? Uh, He's going to write them, but he hasn't yet. His exact words are not recorded, but they probably took the form of elusive terms such as Faramir used in explaining to Frodo the content of the unspoken grace before communal meals that was a Numenorean ritual. E.g., something along the lines of, These words shall stand by the faith of the heirs of the downfallen in the keeping of the thrones of the West and of that which is above all thrones forever. So that's what he means by elusive terms, right? Um, Talking about God without actually explicitly referring to the One or something like that. This would, in effect, hallow the spot for as long as the Numenorean realms endured and was no doubt intended to do so being not in any way an attempt to restore the worship of the One on the Minaltarma, Pillar of Heaven, the central mountain of Numenor, but a reminder of it, and of the claim made by the heirs of Elendil that since they had never wavered in their allegiance, they were still permitted to address the One in thought and prayer direct. Okay, so 
Um, there's so many things that I love about this whole this whole section, um, the the whole Halifarian discussion. The first thing that I love about them. Let me count the ways in which I love this section. The first thing that I love about this section is that um, the first thing that I love is that it seems, it suggests this whole situation seems to suggest that Tolkien is sitting down and trying to answer this question, which this seems to happen to him all the time, right? He names something something, or somebody says, a character says something. And Tolkien then proceeds to say, um, wonder what that means, right? I've figured that out. And this seems to be what's happening, right? He named this place, you know, he said that the, you know, the, the, the beacon, right, um, bursts to light on the Halifirian. So he calls it the Halifirian and then has to figure out, why is it holy? Why did the Rohirrim, in their language call it the Holy Mountain. I mean, it's got to be a reason. It's not just a random name. So what's holy about the Holy Mountain? How could there be something holy? What kind of holiness would there be associated with that particular hill, right? And so his, it seems that his very first, um, uh, his very first pass at it, right? His very first gesture is, well, maybe that's where the oath of Errol was sworn. Maybe it's it's holy because that's where the oath happened. But that doesn't seem very satisfying, right? I mean, that it would be important. You might put up a monument there, right? I mean, you might tell stories about it. You might they might revere it. But that wouldn't make it holy exactly, right? It would still seem weird for them to call it the Halafirian. You know, they might call it something else, right? It might be a hill of great solemnity. It might be a you know a, 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 a you know a, a, an important memorial. But but why holy exactly? So trying to develop that, right? Elaborate on that. Um, he goes on to add. You know, goes on to explain. Well, it's because of the terms that Kyrian used, right? Tyrion invokes the one. In his oath, it's a big deal that he invokes the one in his oath, right? And the words that he says, like the fact that he invokes the one to witness this, sanctifies the spot. This would, in effect, hallow the spot for as long as the Numenorean realms endured. Okay, so he is... Not just the fact that, hey, this is where we signed the treaty. You know, it's, it's not like that, right? Um, this was, a, this was a, a holy, a sacred, a religious moment made into a holy and religious moment by Kyrian and his choice of oaths. Okay, though it still doesn't fully explain why the... May, that would maybe explain why the Gondorians would think of it that way, but would the Rohirrim think of it exactly that way? Um... I'm not sure, but um, anyway, let's um, uh, let's keep looking. Okay, the ancient monument. So, but then there's there's this. There was a a thing, right? There was an ancient monument of rough stones, nearly man high with a flat top. That was there, right? He tells us 
kind of out of nowhere. Again, I love the what seems to be the creative sequence of Tolkien right now. I'm not 100% sure. Maybe I'm wrong in this interpretation. But doesn't it sound this way? Doesn't it sound like he first has the name, Halafirian, and he's like, why is it holy? I don't know. They swore the oath there. And that was a really big, sacred, religious deal, so it becomes holy after that. Maybe that works, right? But then when he's describing it, he's like, oh yeah, and P.S., um, there was an ancient monument up there when they got up there. There was an ancient monument of rough stones nearly man-high with a flat top. Huh. What was that? Now he seems to have to, to need to answer that question, right? What was that ancient monument? What could that ancient monument have been? And that, that ancient monument has to be something which is commensurate with holiness, right? So, and this is a problem, actually. Right? The ancient monument, by which was evidently meant a structure made before the coming of the Numenorians, so we're talking seriously ancient, right? is a curious feature, but is no support to the view that the mountain was already in some sense hallowed before its use in the oath-taking. Right? So again, one possible explanation is, okay, they, if, the, um, if you need to, to bolster the it's holy because they swore the oath there thing, if that doesn't fully do it for you, right? Well, then maybe we can say it was already like a pretty holy mountain, right? And then they swore the oath there and invoked Iluvatar, and now everyone's like, okay, now this place is is really holy now, right? Um, So it already had some kind of, it was already associated in some way with holiness, right? Is the, the possibility that Tolkien's exploring here. But notice he says the fact um, that there was an ancient monument there does not support that view. That doesn't help. If you're wanting it to be already pre-sanctified, that mountain, right, the fact that there's an ancient monument there is the opposite of help. Had it been in regard, had it been regarded, that is the monument, as of religious significance, it would in fact have made this use impossible, unless it had at least been completely destroyed first. an ancient religious monument on that hill would have made the hill unholy, not holy. For a religious structure that was ancient could only have been erected by the men of darkness, corrupted by Morgoth or his servant Sauron. Right? So the only kind of religious structure that could have been built by the pre-Numenorean people would have been some kind of unholy temple to Morgoth. And that would not make it a holy mountain, but quite the reverse, right? So in order to, so basically they would have had to, in order for Kyrian to do his oath swearing by Eru, he would have had to tear it down first, right? He would have had to cleanse it. So the idea that that's the ancient monument that's up there, apparently, right? You know, he totally sees an ancient monument up there in his head, um, uh, the fact that there's an ancient monument does not help the pre-sanctification of the mountain. Um, okay, the middlemen, descendants of the ancestors, using Faramir's language here, right, um, from his explanation to Frodo, descendants of the ancestors of the Numenorians were not regarded as evil nor inevitable enemies of Gondor. So, like the Rohirrim themselves, right? The Rohirrim, when they were living in the north, they're not, they're not men of darkness. They, they're not assumed to have been worshipping Sauron and Morgoth at some point, right? That wasn't, that wasn't them, 
Nothing is recorded of their religion or religious practices before they came in contact with the Numenorians. Um, this, so again, we're talking about like the the we're talking about Rohani's religion here, right? Or lack of it. Nothing was recorded of it before they came into contact with the Numenorians. And those who became associated or fused with the Numenorians adopted their customs and beliefs, included in the lore which Faramir speaks of as being learned by the Rohirrim. The ancient monument can thus not have been made by the Rohirrim, or honored by them as sacred, since they had not yet established themselves in Rohan at the time of the Oath, soon after the Battle of the Field of Celebrant. Right? They could... I mean, so first of all, they weren't there. Right? But secondly... They didn't have any religion that would have led them to make a, a religious monument, right? So, so notice what he's doing. He's, he's eliminating possibilities here. There's an ancient monument there. If the ancient monument were erected by any of the pre-Numenorian people of that region, it would have been a sacrilegious temple to Morgoth, right? So that's a bad look. Um, the other possibility is that it was... Re- another. There are three theoretical... Po- if there's an ancient monument, somebody had to build it. Who built it? Right? Who built it? Some humans built it. If it was built by the pre-Numenorians, then it would have been a temple to Morgoth, and that's bad. So, And clearly that's not true, because you can tell by the fact that Kyrian didn't raise it to the ground, right? Which he would have done had it been a temple of Morgoth. So, okay, so it's definitely not made by them. The second option is that it could have been made by the Rohirrim themselves. And that's impossible for two reasons. Reason one, because they just got here. What are they doing making ancient monuments in a place where they they just arrived, right? This is not their ancient home. So in the ancient days, they were nowhere near here, so obviously they didn't make it. But more, there's a second reason why it couldn't have been them. And the second reason is that they um, didn't have any religious monuments until they met the Numenorians, right? So for double reasons, it cannot have been wholly within the culture, independently of the Rohirrim, prior to the swearing of the Oath of Kyrian. Right. That only leaves one possible solution, right, of what it could be. If it's not made by the men of darkness, and it's not made by the Rohirrim, by any of the middlemen, it must have been made by Numenorians. But if it's ancient, it must have been made by Numenorians a long time ago, like not during the rule of the kings in Gondor, because it's more ancient than that. Okay, and such structures in high places as places of religious worship was no part of the customs of men, good or evil. It may, however, have been a tomb. Ah, the tomb, right? It could have been a tomb. The idea comes in, right? I love this moment because... um, I love this moment because he is... We can see, I, I mean, from what I can see, and based on Christopher's comments as well, Christopher's comments, which Carl uh, provides there, um, the, um, uh, oh, how strange. My apologies. Um, for those of you who are listening on the Zoom feed, that seems to have spontaneously died for some reason. How peculiar. But sorry, Twitch stream is going okay, so I'm going to continue. Um... Uh, based on Christopher's comments that Carl gives us and uh, and based on what we can see of Tolkien's kind of 
ramblings, right, meanderings through working this out, writing his way through this, right, um, I think we're seeing it's so much fun when we see these moments of creation, right? Like, this does seem to be that, you know, it may, however, have been a tomb. Bing! Tomb of Elendil, right? Who else could it be, right? It's got to be ancient, so let's go max ancient on the Numenorian thing, and all of a sudden, bam, it becomes the... Um, it becomes the now definitely holy mountain where Elendil is buried, right? Why did Elendil get buried on this random hill, you know, on the border of Rohan? Answer, because the mountain was called the Halifurian and Tolkien had to figure out why it was holy, right? We can see how it all came about. And from this perspective, it makes perfect sense. Um, and uh, I, just, I, think that's, I think that's just fascinating. Really, really interesting to see how these things are emerging. And I really think if we, and when we look at this section here, I think that this is one of those moments where we are watching Tolkien's creative process unfolding. Right, watching as he writes his way through the answer to a question, which is going to lead him to a story. He's going to write it. Right? He's going to go on, not a full narrative, but he's going to go on and write the, whole, the oath of Kyrian and Aeorl that we get in Unfinished Tales. Um, that's going to emerge, right? Um, uh, he, puts it, he stops writing at this point. It may, however, have been a tomb. Puts his pen down. And Christopher thinks immediately goes and writes the Oath of Kyrian and Aeorl that you can read in Unfinished Tales. So cool. I mean, oh man, what a big ending uh, to this book because I think that this stuff is... I, I love these moments. These are my favorite moments in all of the like History of Middle-earth kind of stuff, right? All of this backstage stuff, uh, the draft material and everything like that. There is nothing cooler than this. Um, one last... This is... Last slide. Um... This footnote, um, which was from the passage we were just talking about, um, and uh, about the temples, right? Thinking about the men of darkness building temples. The men of darkness built temples, some of great size, usually surrounded by dark trees, often in caverns, natural or delved, in secret valleys of mountain regions, such as the dreadful halls and passages under the haunted mountain beyond the dark door, gate of the dead in Dunharrow. Really? Okay. The special horror of the closed door before which the skeleton of Baldor was found was probably due to the fact that the door was the entrance to an evil temple hall to which Baldor had come, probably without opposition up to that point. But the door was shut in his face, and enemies that had followed him silently came up and broke his legs and left him to die in the darkness, unable to find any way out. Whoa. First of all, the dead guys, the ghosts broke his legs? They did? Really? Or was, were there not dead people? Were there living people sneak up behind him and broke his legs? I, enemies that had followed him silently. Probably the dead, right? Probably the dead. Um, but, um, Man, that is mind-blowing. So first of all, let's just go back to um, 
the dreadful halls and passages under the haunted mountain beyond the dark door. Really cool just to hear more about that, right? Um, the kind of confirmation, and this is an idea that we see him thinking about and kind of playing with on at several other points. Um, I remember reading, you know, we were talking about it. Oh, I forget whether it was the beginning of the War of the Ring or in Treason of Isengard. I can't remember which one it was, but... Um, uh, um, but um, anyway, uh, he... The idea that Dunharrow was originally um, a temple, right? A, a, a dubious fane, right? Holy place um, of the people who were who came there before. Um, but um, uh, the kind of confirmation of this is interesting. But more than that, right? This glimpse that we get under the haunted mountain, that under the haunted mountain was a temple, and presumably a temple to Sauron, right? A temple in which human sacrifice probably happened back in the day, right? Um, that that's what is under the haunted mountain is chilling enough, right? But then this glimpse, the cause of death. So, Arthur, you think that uh, Baldur probably died of post-fracture pulmonary fat embolism? Um, possibly. Possibly. Um, I think it's probable that he died of thirst, right, with both of his legs broken and unable to get anywhere uh, uh, or, uh, you know, escape. Um, uh, but it could possibly have been a post-fracture pulmonary fat embolism. I can't rule that out. Um, I'm not really in a position to rule that out. Uh, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, I would never in a hundred years have imagined... Of course, you, you remember what we see when we find Baldur's skeleton. Um, we can't tell. You could presumably have told, like, whether his, you know, his leg bones were broken. Um, but, um, I, but anyway... Um, we see his notched sword, right? It looks like he had tried to get through the door and failed, and I mean, it looks, I mean, even as it is in the text when we see the skeleton of Baldur, um, or hear about it, at least, um, it's still already something like a, uh, you know, Edgar Allan Poe moment, right? Like this idea of him you know, dying of fear while desperately first hewing at the door with in vain with his sword and then scrabbling at it with his broken and bloody fingers until he dies of terror, right? I mean, it's already this kind of horrifying moment, which just, um, that's how I always imagined it, right? Based on the description that we get in the, t in the book. Um, but in, in a way, I, I think this version is actually worse, right? Because it's, it's not like he just comparatively peacefully... Having both of your legs broken and being left to lie there and die of thirst on the spot is pretty bad. That's a pretty bad way to die, right? But to do it outside the door of the dreadful evil temple hall, right, with the spirits of the dead around you, I mean... 
Yikes. <laughs> Yikes. That is terrifying. With that pleasant thought, I will leave you. Um, thank you guys for joining me for our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth. This has been really fun. I have enjoyed discovering this book with you, of course. I've been reading it for the first time as we went through. Really neat to get a chance to go through this together you know, right after, from right after it was released, um, through now spending the last eight months here together. Um, and, uh, I have, uh, um, I've been delighted to discover this with you. Thank you for coming along, coming along with me on this journey. And I look forward to some slightly lighter hearted things than this last moment here, uh, in Alice in Wonderland, uh, next time. So we'll be doing some Lewis Carroll. Um, we're going to read it, uh, I just wanted to confirm, we're going to read all of the uh, book and poetry in uh, in the Alice books in English, not in Quenya. Just wanted to clarify um, that that's the plan. So um, thanks very much, everybody, for joining me. And I will see you. Don't forget, it'll be on the 18th, the 18th of May. Uh, Wednesday the 18th is when I'm planning to resume with our um, our discussion of Alice in Wonderland. All right. Thanks very much. That was a lot of fun, and I will see you guys again soon. I don't have, uh, Tomas, I don't have a recommended edition in mind, necessarily. Um, uh, there are a lot of editions. Um, it's, it's fine. Yeah, I'm not going to be focusing on the like particular layout. Um, I may be alluding to some of the, um, the famous illustrations, right, that may come up at times. Um, but, um, uh, but you can find those in most editions. So, anyway, thank you very much. And we will, uh, I'll see you guys back here in a few weeks, uh, other places sooner, but uh, uh, like tomorrow night uh, for some film. Uh, but I'll see you guys again soon. Thanks for joining me for this and see you soon for Alice. Bye now. <laughs>